Well, today we are going to experience Christ confronting Christianity. Christ confronting Christianity. And that's important for several reasons. It's important that we would experience Christ confronting Christianity because when we think of Christ in our pop culture, uh, we think of Him as someone who wouldn't confront anything or anyone, right? We tend to think of, of Jesus as someone who looks like He should be on a skincare ad or maybe something for hair care products. Someone who plays with lambs all day and couldn't confront anyone if he ever even wanted to. It's important that we talk about Christ confronting Christianity. It's also important for another reason. It's important that we talk about Christ confronting Christianity because we tend to think if Christ would ever confront anything, if Christ would ever be for and against anything, it would be that he's for what I'm for and he's against what I'm against. In practical terms, even though we would never say it this way, in practical terms, we tend to think of Jesus um, in these terms. What would Jesus do? We practically answer the question by saying or suggesting, Jesus would do what I do. That's how we think of Jesus. We think of Jesus as someone who looks a lot like us as far as how we act and our demeanor. We define who Jesus is by our actions. It's a pretty common way to think of Jesus. It's also important that we talk this morning about Christ confronting Christianity because if we think he would ever confront anyone, the last kind of person he would ever confront would be someone like us. It's so good that we're going to see Christ confronting Christianity. Christ confronting people who are a lot like you and people who are a lot like me people who profess to be Bible believers because it helps us to see Christ for who He really is. So if you have a Bible, Luke 11 is going to be the passage. This is just one of those, one more reasons why, why it's good to study the Bible um, a book at a time, verse by verse, uh, because in so many ways, I would never preach this kind of passage. In so many ways, you would never want to hear a sermon like this because it might mess with our view of Jesus. But it's so refreshing to, to, by God's grace, have a true view of Jesus. And that means sometimes having our view altered to see that, indeed, He's different than we've made Him. The real Jesus is a Jesus who even confronts people like you and people like me. So Luke 11, we'll look at um, verses 29 to 54. And we won't look at all of them this morning. Christ confronting Christianity. If you'd like an outline this morning, the outline I'm going to follow uh, would be an outline of 11 characteristics. 11 characteristics of the kind of Christianity that Christ confronts. 11 characteristics of the Christianity that Christ confronts. Before we, we got to the first five first hour, and I wouldn't want to show favoritism. And so... Um, I think we'll do five this hour as well. Maybe one more qualifier before we go, and that would be, um, technically speaking, these folks aren't Christians. Because technically speaking, we don't have followers of Jesus or, or followers of Messiah called Christians until Acts 11. Um, so I'm taking a little liberty just to let you know that I'm calling these people Christians. Um, even though they weren't ever called Christians yet. But there's a good reason for it. 
they are people who would claim to be Messiah followers. They are people who would say they've been waiting their whole life for the coming of Messiah. They are people who would have their hope and trust, at least they would say, in Messiah. There are people who would say Messiah is going to deliver them. Messiah is going to save them. Messiah is going to be their King of Kings and Lord of Lords. A lot like we would say on the other side of things. And again, as I mentioned last week, if you were here, Messiah in the Old Testament, that Hebrew word, the Greek word for it is Christ. Christians are followers of Christ. And so I think I'm taking the liberty for good reason so we can see they're a lot like us. They would have claimed to be Messiah followers. We claim to be Messiah followers. If we want to use the Old Testament word, we claim to be Messiah followers. If we want to use the New Testament word for them, they claim to be Christ followers. They're more like us than we might imagine. Number one, the first characteristic. The Christianity that Christ confronts is the sort that, number one, demands proof in the face of proof. Demands proof in the face of proof. Let's look at verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign. This generation is an evil generation based upon what do you say that Jesus? He goes on to explain this generation is an evil generation because it seeks for a sign. The greater context, as we saw last time, chapter 11, verse 16, would be people who see the signs. They, 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 with their own two eyes, as personal eyewitnesses, see that Jesus is showing himself to be the long-awaited Christ, to be the long-awaited Messiah. They see the signs. There's collaborating witnesses. This isn't just in the middle of the night in a dream and, and what happened to me. This is before the masses. Oh, let's add to it, repeatedly. And when they saw it back then, they said, Jesus, show us some proof. Show us a sign. And Jesus says about them, You are a wicked generation. You're a perverse generation. You're a corrupt generation. You're a corrupt people because in the face of signs, proof, evidences, you say, show us proof. It's nonsense. It's worse than nonsense. It's evil. As an aside, you can see why Jesus would have failed marketing classes, right? Verse 29, when the crowds were increasing, since he he baited them and got them, he kept them by telling them what they wanted to hear. The crowds are increasing. And he called them wicked. Jesus told the truth. Jesus told the truth. I didn't mention that first hour, so you should feel extraordinarily privileged to have gotten even more uh, than first hour. Or maybe you should feel slighted because I shouldn't have said something like that. But anyway... Jesus proved it is what they're saying, and he's proved it time and time again. Let's keep going in verse 29. But no sign will be given to it, except the sign of Jonah. Verse 30 says, For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. By the way, notice, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Son of Man, that's a, that's a technical messi, uh, messianic title. That's a title for Messiah, that I'm the one. The Messiah is going to be assigned to you just like Jonah was assigned. Maybe at first we might think, well, because of his preaching. 
preaching. Jesus was preaching uh, like Jonah was preaching, preaching repentance. But we know that it's more than that if we know much about the Bible. And that's that we know Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and then set free. Matthew's account tells us, Matthew's parallel account to our Luke account, that that's what he's getting at. As Jonah was in the belly of the fish, three days and then set free, Jesus, the Son of Man, the Messiah, will be like him. Kind of interesting, isn't it? Jesus says there'll be no sign. You're evil, wicked, perverse, corrupt, there'll be no sign. Oh, except for one. That one like Jonah. That's a huge sign. And we all know that once they saw him raised from the dead, they all believed and repented and everybody on the planet became a Christian, right? No, that isn't how it goes. Many, many did believe. Yes, it's true. But many did not believe and they rejected him. And what does this show us in the long run? What does this show us in the long run? It shows us that the problem isn't with Jesus and the problem isn't with the evidences and the problem isn't with the proofs and the problem isn't with the signs. Um, There's only one problem left. And you looked at them this morning when you got up in the mirror. We've met the enemy (laughs) and the enemy is us. The, The heart of the matter is the heart of the matter. We're learning time and time again, and we're learning here. The Bible talks about it lots of places. The problem is not with Jesus. The problem isn't with the signs. The problem isn't with the history. The problem isn't with the evidences. The problem is with the human heart. Before their very eyes. And what do they do? It's ludicrous. It's crazy. It's spiritual insanity. Prove it. And Jesus blasts them for it. You are wicked and evil. You professed. Christ followers, Christ anticipators. By way of application, what do you say to somebody when they say, well, that's all fine and good what you tell me. I'm glad it works for you. This is after you tell them the gospel. I guess if I could see it with my own eyes, I guess if Jesus were here, if he raised from the dead, if I could see it, then I, then I would believe. What do you say? I think you should be really nice and sweet about it. And say, I don't believe you. Because they wouldn't. If history has anything to say about it. If Luke chapter 16 has anything to say about it. We're not going to go there. We're going to get there soon enough. If you don't believe the historic accounts. If you don't believe all the history, if you don't believe the eyewitnesses, you won't believe it even if somebody comes back from the dead. It's a spiritual issue. It's not a fact issue. The facts are important. We need Jesus to bodily rise from the dead. We need Jesus to do the signs. We need him to prove it. But he has. He has. It's a spiritual issue. It's a spiritual condition. And we're seeing that here. We're seeing that here. I referenced Matthew's account. If you want to jot it down for sake of looking it up later, Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 to 40 is the parallel to what we're looking at here. He'll show them a sign, and the sign is going to be just like the sign of Jonah. 
the son of Jonah. Let's move on to number two. The Christianity that Christ confronts is the sort that refuses to learn from redemptive history. Refuses to learn from redemptive history. And what I mean by redemptive history is how God has worked in history. So since the fall, how how has God worked in redemptive history? We're talking about the history of what we have in the Bible. So when people refuse to learn from how God has been working, Jesus gets upset. Now think of the irony. The people Jesus is talking to, many of them at least, if not most of them, would be people who would claim to be experts in redemptive history. They know all the stories. They know all the accounts. They know all about their great God who is powerful to deliver. And, and, and they've been learning these things since they were young, memorizing large, large portions of the Old Testament scriptures. They would claim to be, and in many ways, they were experts in redemptive history. And Jesus is really, really going to go after them because he's going to say they refuse to learn from redemptive history. And so let's see that unfold here. Verse 31, the queen of the south, a.k.a. otherwise known as the queen of Sheba, an African queen, the queen of the south. They would have all known who she was, even if we don't know. More about her in a second. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, 1 Kings chapter 10, we learn about the queen of the south. The queen of the south is a pagan queen, an African queen who travels all the way to Israel because she's heard about this this amazingly wise, amazingly blessed of God king named Solomon. And they would have all known about her. It's historic, redemptive history. As a matter of fact, if you're a Jewish person, you say, the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba. Everyone should learn from her. Everyone, all Gentiles should learn from the Queen of the South because she recognized the wisdom of Yahweh because he gave it to his great King Solomon. They should see. They should notice. Right? That's how the thinking would go. Jesus is making the point that they themselves, the ones who would commend the Gentile Queen, are not following suit because they themselves are not seeing that Jesus is greater than Solomon. That, 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 that in Him, to quote the Apostle Paul, all, all wisdom dwells. I mean, I mean, he, he's the ultimate Solomon to reference Colossians chapter 2 and the idea that it's there. Solomon was designed, yes, he was greatly wise, the wisest man on planet earth, but Jesus is wisdom personified. And so you can talk all you want about Solomon and how he's the great hero and the great king. And you can talk about all you want about how even pagans learned who he was and they traveled from afar, Queen of Sheba. And Jesus is saying, you know what, on Judgment Day, the Queen of Sheba is going to stand as a witness against you because you're a fool. You don't know anything about redemptive history. 
It's just harsh, right? First Kings chapter 10, verse 7 says, but, but I did not believe the reports until I came. This is the Queen of Sheba speaking. And my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told of me. Your wisdom, talking about Solomon, and prosperity surpassed the report I heard. Happy are you, your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord, your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king and that you may execute justice and, and righteousness. And then in our passage, Jesus says in verse 31 at the end, Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Gentiles even understand that. Think about the insult that would be. Gentiles even understand that. I mean, this is a stretch. I don't know how to compare it to us. Um... Just here we're at Omaha Bible Church. We claim to take the Bible seriously at face value and very committed to that. I mean, this would be like us having something right before our very noses and, and having Jesus show up and say, you know what? The Unitarians even understand this. The Unity Church that doesn't stand for anything understands this. The godless. I'm just trying to come up with something insulting. You don't look very insulted, but... um, It's as far away as you can get. Maybe that's not a good illustration. I need to stick to my notes. Um, People who live in Boulder, Colorado and hug trees for a living. Um, I don't know what insults you. Um... Because we all know that everyone who lives... Never mind, I'm not going there. (laughs) I mean, as godless as you can be, they see it. They see it. And you claim to be. He's talking to people who are Bible believers. They're not the liberals. They're the conservatives. That doesn't mean they're wrong, but it just shows how wrong anybody can be. Verse 32 says, The men of Nineveh, oh, more godless Gentiles. See, Jesus isn't just picking these people for no reason. He's talking to the, the, the Yahweh belongers, Messiah expectors, in that sense, the Christians. And he just references one pagan, and now he's going to reference another pagan, which is an insult. The the men of Nineveh, verse verse 32, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment and with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Again, the same kind of rationale. You should be repenting. You should be saying, oh, Jesus is the one. We had it totally wrong. He's absolutely who he claims to be. He's proven he's who he claims to be. Jonah will stand and condemn you one day on Judgment Day. Jonah preached. Jonah preached to the godless Ninevites. No, Jonah won't stand. That isn't what it says, is it? The men of Nineveh, not Jonah, sorry. The Gentiles. They'll stand. 
Because even the godless pagans, when they heard the truth on that occasion, responded. So, is he, is he saying anything negative about Solomon? No. Anything negative about Jonah? No. He's saying something negative about their professed followers. I mean, it's okay. Keep Solomon on the flannel graph at Shabbat school. Um, keep Jonah on the flannel graph at Shabbat school. God has worked greatly in redemptive history. He's worked extraordinarily. But you're totally blowing it. And I'm going to call you wicked and evil and condemned if you think that it stops with them. It doesn't. It absolutely doesn't. Now this would be all the more insane spiritually if we didn't learn from this. Jesus is expecting them to know that He's the point of all of it. How much more we're living on the other side of the cross if we ourselves don't know that Jesus is the point of all of it. And now my mind is racing to the book of Hebrews. You know, what are we going to do? Are we going to be shadow grabbers? Shadows are good and important. God is redemptively worked and shadows always anticipate the substance. And Christ is the substance. And when we think the shadows are the substance, it shows our spiritual perversity and Jesus lets us have it lets us have it let's go on to the next one the Christianity that Christ confronts is the sort that sorry this is a long one rejects the clear light rejects the clear light Revealing their own state of darkness. Rejects the clear light revealing their own state of darkness. This is verses 33 to 36. And as a heads up, I'm not going to lie. It's complicated. And so I'm going to try to not make it, I'm going to try to have it, keep it super simple. But it's a complicated passage um, because of the imagery that Jesus uses. And it seems to use it in different ways, applied to different people. Um, I'm in good company in the view I'm going to take. I'll just say that and not get bogged down in the details. Um, Let's give it a shot. Verse 33. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Stop there for a second. Jesus uses, If that sounds familiar, it's because Jesus uses similar kind of language when he talks about how believers are light. But he seems to be using it differently here. Same imagery, but he can use imagery in different ways. He seems to be, wouldn't die for this, seems to be talking about himself. I'm clear to everyone, so everyone can see. Sort of like John chapter chapter 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world for all to see clearly. I'm going to take that view. If you don't like that view, fine. We can still be friends. Um, Not something to divide over. I'm going to take it that he's talking about himself first. Clear for everyone to see. Now let's move on. 
Then he seems to switch, and now he seems to be talking about his audience. I think he was talking about himself at first. Then he's talking about his audience. Verse 34, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. Everything's good is what he's saying. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. See, I wasn't lying when I said it's a little tough. Think what he's getting at. I'm just going to actually read my one sentence explanation. How one sees things, specifically Jesus, the light, affects everything. How one sees things, specifically Jesus, the light, affects everything. I think that's the overall concept point reality is getting at. I'm the light. Then he talks about light related to them, the light of the eye. The way you see things, specifically the way you see me, is the indicator of who you really are and what's true on the inside. I am the point of evaluation. I am the one. And if you see me and you reject me, it shows that you're dark on the inside. If you see me and you embrace me for who I claim to be, then that reveals the right spiritual condition on the inside. And here, it's a warning. Be careful. It all comes back to how you see Jesus Christ. It all comes back to what you do with me and your view and your perception of who I am. So be really, really careful. To reject Jesus is to be in darkness and to be completely in darkness. Number four, let's move on to the next one. The Christianity that Christ confronts is the sort that prioritizes image over substance. The Christianity that Christ confronts is the sort that prioritizes image over substance. Verse 37 says, While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee... Who are the Pharisees? We tend to think Pharisees, bad guys. But in one sense, let, let, let's not do that to them. We, we think they're bad because they reject Jesus, and that's bad. <laughs> but, but think about the fact that the Pharisees in one sense, should have been the good guys. Because they're the ones who believe the Bible is true. Something Jesus himself believed. Okay? They took it seriously. Um, they weren't like the Sadducees, the liberals, who denied supernatural things. The Pharisees are actually in the right group. And so let's not throw them under the bus too quickly and let's acknowledge the Pharisees should be the good guys. And in one sense, if you lived back then, you would have gone to Pharisee Bible Church. People like us in this room would go to Pharisee Bible Church even though there was no such thing as a Bible church, then you get the idea. They're the ones that believe the true things about God and redemptive history. And So let's see them in that light, in a sense. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee, see, it wouldn't have been a negative connotation then, asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that, that he did not first wash before dinner. 
Can, can anybody else hear that? Can, can, can anybody else hear Fiddler on the Roof playing in the background? At least one person in the room is cultured. Um, <laughs> Fiddler on the Roof. Tradition. Only time I sing at Omaha Bible Church is when I do that. Good reason, right? <laughs> They're not talking about genuine ceremonial, law-keeping, washing kinds of things. They're talking about, they're totally offended that Jesus didn't keep the Pharisaic laws of cleanliness. That they didn't keep the sacred traditions. How dare Jesus? Jesus should know. We, we, we have a sacred tradition here, and we've been doing this for long enough, and if it's old, it's true and right. Not. But anyway... They're totally bothered that Jesus doesn't follow their sacred traditions. Again, think in terms of conservative, Bible-believing good. And then what do we do? I'm going to make a step to my right. More conservative, better. Bible-following, good. More rule-following, Better. Pharisees, Jewish people known for, if God is pleased with law keeping, then we're going to have extras. Known for, let's have God's law, and just so nobody even gets close to breaking it, let's build a fence around it. Because that will show faithfulness. I like to say, if God would have wanted a fence, He would have built a fence. It's an attack on the sufficiency of God. It's an attack on the efficiency of His law. When you add to, by definition, you're taking away. When you add to what God says, you're taking away from who God is. Because God gave what was sufficient and pleasing to Him. And we're saying it's not sufficient and it's not pleasing to Him. And this is scandalous. And Jesus, therefore, locks and loads. They prioritize image over substance, we're going to see, in their legalism. The Pharisees are astonished. Verse 39, And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup? And of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, verse 40 says, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? Verse 41 says, but give us alms, but give as alms those things that are within. Be devoted to the things that are in, in other words. And behold, everything is clean for you. Externalists, legalists, are externalists. They start focusing on the outside stuff. Think about how, I, I, I don't know how to illustrate it better than Jesus does. We could make it contemporary. And I mean, just, just think about going to a restaurant this afternoon and going and ordering your drink or your soup or whatever it is. And inside the container, there's somebody else's something or another. It doesn't belong to you. And you're like, what do you do? 
what do you do if the waiter or the waitress comes and says, oh, I'm terribly sorry. I'd like, I'll, I'll, I'll make it right for you. And then they carefully, maybe they put some rubber gloves on and then carefully take out um, a dish towel and they shine and buff and clean underneath it and on the outside. We're terribly sorry. Uh, here, here you go. You're like, I'm terribly sorry, but I'm out of here. This is disgusting and gross and insane. I'm not so concerned about the outside. I want it to be clean on the inside. It's crazy. It's crazy. And here they are. So committed to sacred tradition that they've lost their eyesight spiritually. They're, 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 They're completely out of it. They're all about how things look on the outside. And Jesus is making the point that that, that it's not about how things look on the outside. Ultimately, it's about things on the inside and then everything else takes care of itself. And thankfully, Jesus comes to make things right on the inside. But he first has to expose them for who they are. And some of us, our natural tendency is to struggle with legalism. We just have to know that more doesn't mean better. We don't want to take away from what God says. We don't want to add to what God says. Jesus is serious about both. Talking to professing Bible believers. Number five, and finally for this morning. The Christianity that Christ confronts is the sort that, number five, majors on the minors and minors on the majors. Majors on the minors and minors on the majors. Similar to what we just saw. This is pretty heavy-duty stuff, huh? I feel like I should tell a story or something just to kind of light things up, but I'm not going to. Um, It is heavy-duty stuff. Verse 42 says, But woe to you Pharisees. Woe to you professed Bible-believing conservatives. Woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue, another small, a small herb, and every herb, and, by way of contrast here, neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Look again where he says in verse 42, and neglect justice and the love of God. That's another way of saying what? Love of God and justice. Justice, how people relate to each other, Hmm, how people love their neighbor. Those two, those two statements put together, I think that's what he's getting at, don't you? Love God, justice, love neighbor. It's, an, it's, it's how you love your neighbor, one of the ways. I think that's what he's getting at. I think he's getting at the law. Jesus summarized the law when he's put on trial, so to speak, by the religious leaders. What's the greatest commandment? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. The whole thing's built upon this. 
I think that's what Jesus is getting at here, no doubt. You are all about the minutiae and and you, you excel and you focus on all of these small details. He doesn't say they're wrong, by the way. In the Old Testament law about the tithe. And you're so consumed with that, you neglect the major issue, which is the law of God in its clarity, in its essence. Loving God and, and, and loving neighbor. And you're so consumed with this that you don't even focus on this. This is a huge problem when you major on the minors and miter on the major. And Jesus lets them have it. Jesus goes after them. Now think about why we might do this. Why might we or why might they get things upside down? Well, in part, it's very tangible. Okay, so if I'm supposed to give a tenth and I have all my harvest and I have all my spices here and I want to be faithful because I want to be biblical, it's good, right? So I can get out my scale, measure, 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 Yep, don't want to slight. You want to do, do the right thing. And I have this tangibly to give as an offering. Not wrong. In fact, they're called to do it. But this good thing that they're called to do can somehow be seen as the ultimate and so, so consuming that you're forgetting about everything else. Now let's question motives a little bit because Jesus does go after their motives at times. This here little thing that I do is measurable. And if it's measurable before my eyes, it can be measurable measurable before the eyes of others. Oh, and then add Pharisees to the whole thing in a teaching kind of mode. We might even question their motives about which one they're going to emphasize as those who would be benefiting from this perhaps in a more tangible way than the big side of things. Because we can get so into these things God does call us to do. And we become experts at these little things. And we forget the big thing, which is loving God. Not just externally through these things. But even with motives. Whole life of worship. And one of the ways that shows up is in our loving neighbor. In our seeking the good and welfare of other people. And Jesus says, you got it totally wrong. You're so committed to religious minutiae that you don't even understand the big point. Now, let's talk about the here and now. That could apply to now and here. Maybe as a a one-off kind of branch. going to think about preaching for a minute and think about Sundays. This applies to other days than Sundays, but we've kind of been talking about that. I can see the appeal to this, even when it comes to teaching and preaching and education. Because there's something in me that wants to say, okay, there are these biblical things that are true and right, and I want to help you with them. So today I'm going to give you 10 biblical principles for accomplishing X. And you're going to go, all right. And if you follow these 10 principles, you will succeed in accomplishing X. You're like, all right, 
then you can come back and say, I followed the 10 principles for accomplishing X, and uh, here's, here's my report. I can say, good job, you did it. There's nothing wrong with that. Could be good and right. And then I can tell you, how, and let's make it bad now. And, and I can show you and tell you how I do the 10 principles. And you'll like that because, I mean, we, we all like hearing about ourselves most. And if we can't just hear stories about ourselves, we like to hear stories about other people. Um, because then we can kind of envision ourselves in them. And you know what? I'm, this church is going to get pretty big pretty fast. Come next week for 10 more principles that you can do. Come the next week, I might give you 11 principles. And I'm getting kind of long-winded. I probably have to go to three. Okay, if we really want to have a bigger church. So I'm going to give you three principles that you can follow that are biblical principles. And if you follow these principles, God is honored. Now, I'm being a little facetious and silly about it. We like can do. Get her done, man. Feeling pretty good. But if my focus is going to be on loving God and loving neighbor, which is the law, Let's just assume for a minute I'm going to stop there. It's not going to take you very long. And everybody with, you know, I don't know. First grade education. We'll figure out after not very long. Can't do it. And if we really unpack it and explain it well enough, you're going to figure out, you know what? Loving God isn't easy. The way the Bible says, it's impossible because I'm a sinner. And loving neighbor isn't easy. It's impossible the way the Bible says because I'm a sinner. And now we have, now we join the national fad of church shrinkage movement. Is you just going to get beat up and beat up and beat up and beat up? Jesus says emphasize that. But why would he do that? So we'd stay there? No. Because then we understand and we see we need a law keeper. Then we understand and then we see that we need a law keeper. And oh, by the way, Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus came as the law keeper. He's the one you must trust in. He's the one you must hope in. You don't trust in yourself. That's, that, 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 that's the, the mega picture. That's the big picture. That's where the emphasis has to be. That's the grand picture. You preach law so the gospel makes sense. Because if it doesn't make sense, if it doesn't, if you don't do that, then it won't make sense. And that changes absolutely everything. It changes everything. And I'm looking at this passage because we do live on the other side of the cross, on the other side of the resurrection, and saying, I think there's some real life application here for us. If we don't keep coming back to this is what God requires, slays us. And we won't really have a need for Christ. But if we keep coming back to what God requires, we can see our need for Christ, unbeliever and believer too. And then on the other side of the cross, trusting in Christ, we're motivated to do these things out of gratitude by the power of the Spirit. Changes everything. Changes everything. I think that Jesus, based upon our passage, has great, great, antagonism aimed at us if we don't emphasize law. 
Because if we don't, we'll never understand gospel. Think about it, about it in historic terms. Jesus shows up as the ultimate law keeper. Okay? Re- remember Galatians chapter 2, uh, the, the law is designed to lead us to Christ. Jesus shows up. He is the Christ. He is the Savior. He is the Deliverer. He shows up and they go, what? They're not led to Him. Historically, I think we could say, and I don't think it's pushing it too far to say, they're not led to Him because they hadn't been hearing the law. If they had been hearing the law in its true sense, because they're putting the emphasis on the dillweed, okay? What we can accomplish. In its true, unvarnished, full-powered sense, it means you must love God perfectly with perfect motives, heart, soul, mind, and strength, neighbor as yourself. They would have been in absolute spiritual devastation mode. And now the law keeper comes to fulfill all righteousness, and we trust in Him. No law keeping, no need for gospel. Or no law preaching, no need for gospel. And why would it be really different today? You've got to know that you're a failure. You've got to know you can't keep God's law. You've got to know that you fail on so many different accounts by what you do, by what you don't do, sins of omission, sins of commission, sins of other kinds that people make up words to describe. I don't know. No one has ever loved God perfectly with heart, soul, mind, and strength. No one has ever loved neighbor as themselves. Except for Jesus. And that's God's requirement. So He loves us enough to give His Son. So if we trust in Him, God accepts us. Yes. I want to go on record as saying, Jesus will be very angry with Omaha Bible Church. If we don't put the emphasis in the right place, and according to this passage, it's on the law which begs the question where's the answer the answer comes from the gospel now let's end on this we can look at this passage passage and go yep we pass I'm so glad that we major on the majors and we don't minor on the minors or whatever it was I forgot I'm so glad that we're not like this Or we could act like Christians and say, on certain levels, at certain points, sometimes deeper than other points, we're guilty because we're sinners. And we can be thankful that God sent His Son to give Himself up for sinners. We can be thankful that God doesn't hold hold it against us. We're here today to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. What did Jesus come to do? Set everybody straight? Well, he came to set the record straight. And then he came to give himself to atone for our rebellion. So let's not leave puffed up and arrogant. Let's leave maybe seeing our guilt. Maybe not maybe. Let's seeing Christ's glory and his greatness.